Hallelujah. Father, we extol the glory, the majesty, and the dominion, and the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord. How great is our God. How great is our Messiah. How great is our King of Kings. So great that he subdued us, rebels, once at enmity with you. And he took upon the burden on himself, the burden of our sin, loved us before we loved him, changed our hearts, provided atonement for our sins upon his blood on Calvary, defeated the grave in his resurrection, and is placing all his enemies under his foot from the right hand of the majesty on high as he places this nation and every nation of the world under his footstool, subduing them by repentance or by judgment on the final day. We pray, Lord, that the perspective of our faith encouragement of our souls, the boldness of our witness, and the obedience of our walk would be greatly encouraged and strengthened today as a result of reminding ourselves through the pages of your word of the power and the sovereignty, the grace and the glory, the mercy and the steadfast love of our sovereign God. Today, as we turn to our scriptures, remind us of their value, immeasurable. Remind us of their power, great beyond comprehension, remind us of their sufficiency for all things, for all time. And as we bow before the authority of your scripture, may we be transformed and changed into the image of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, to better represent him as ambassadors of the gospel. And I pray that as your scriptures are proclaimed this day, if there are any who have not been conformed to the image of Christ by repenting of their sin and placing faith in Christ alone, they would be moved by the gospel to turn from their wickedness and their idolatry and rebellion and to trust that Jesus Christ is the way, truth, and life and that in Him is salvation unto eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for these moments that you've gathered us together to appreciate in light of these great truths. Would you be magnified and glorified, we pray, in the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Today it is our privilege and gift from the Lord to gather in the name of Christ and to set our attention upon His Word. And today we'll continue in our Psalm 119 series. So I'd invite you to turn to verses 105 through 112. For this, the 14th stanza entitled under the Hebrew letter Nun, and then a further title for this morning's sermon, The Trial of Mortal Affliction. The Trial of Mortal Affliction, which is the presenting test that faces the author in verses 105 through 112, a test of the soul so protracted indeed that it may require his life. Yet where does he gain confidence in the face of such enemies? We find once again the theme of this great song coming forth in the pages of the text. It is the sufficiency of the word, the covenant revelation of God that gives him confidence to stand even in such dire circumstances. Today, the aim of this morning's message, my goal in preaching, is to proclaim with the psalmist, therefore, the sufficiency of Scripture even unto death or even unto trials that threaten life itself. The trial of mortal affliction. 
Would you stand out of reverence and as you're able for the reading of God's Word today and let us consider these eight verses, Psalm 119, 105 through 112. Hear now the proclamation of the authoritative Word of God. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So this may be a little premature and may put some of you kids on the spot, but let me just try this just in case. So I'm told that you guys have a new scripture memory verse, right, young people? John 11:25. Uh, that would be... Uh, Jesus speaking to Martha, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and so forth. So kids, uh, has anyone memorized that verse yet? Could you raise your hand if you've memorized John eleven twenty five 25 yet, kids? Still working on it? Still working on it? Okay. Well, I had this dream in the back of my mind, if you guys were proficient, that I'd have you come up here and we'd all hear you recite this verse together. Um, suffice it to say, in, or, uh, the Word of God stands on its own. And so let me just read this verse to you, and kids... Um, Listen closely to to today's message because it relates to your scripture memory. John 11.25 says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Again, John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, if you were in... John 11, and continuing to read the very next verse, makes the application even more personal as the conversation between Jesus and Martha continues. And, of course, the occasion is concerning her beloved brother Lazarus, who has died. Verse 26 includes these words, quote, And everyone who lives, uh, and, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Imagine Jesus asking you that question, personally and directly. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that, saints? The word of Christ, that he is the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him, in short, will experience resurrection. And of course, our answer, you know, Our knee-jerk response would be, yes, if you're a believer. You're pre-programmed and you're training children, I'm sure, to answer these questions correctly. However, let us admit to ourselves that there are different times in life where the answer to this question is more difficult, especially on this occasion. Think of Martha's situation. The occasion of Jesus' question presented in a profound and incredible test for Martha. Her brother had been dead for four days. They were grieving the loss of a loved one, a death, a tragedy, something unbeknownst to us sneaks up in this hour in this hour of destruction, taking the life. And thus, right at this moment, 
Before Lazarus is raised from the dead, Mary and Martha, distraught with their grief, their brother now four days past the moment of his last breath on this earth, this would likely have been the most difficult time for Martha to answer yes. Nevertheless, Jesus asks her this question. After he raises Lazarus from the dead? No, then it would be easy to answer. Before he raises her brother from the grave, he asks Martha this question. Everyone who lives in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The situation, as it is constructed sovereignly by our Lord, proves to be a test and a testimony of Martha's faith. Mary and Martha's faith is tested by the loss of their brother to death. Is their Messiah stronger than death itself? But this question, asked before Lazarus is raised from the dead, sets up a great testimony of Martha's faith. Her faith passes the test. She answers yes, and her faith is confirmed as Jesus speaks, come forth, and her brother arises from the grave. Her conviction, the conviction of Martha, is all the more evident as she trusts her Messiah in life and in death. And in this is a sovereign purpose. It's a redemptive intent in many of our afflictions. The afflictions that God's people experience set up a test, but also a testimony. And the conviction of a believer who stands in faith, even though he is surrounded by the hardships, the trials, and the tests, even unto death itself in this life, the conviction of a saint who trusts Jesus is stronger than all of these is all the more evident in light of the difficulty they're going through. And thus our trials in this and many other ways are redeemed. Many others in Scripture could relate to this trial as well. And I suggest to you, including the psalmist in Psalm 119, experiencing uh, an affliction unto death, the threat of mortal affliction faced our author. Verses 105 and 112 through 112 present a trial of mortal consequence where the author's oaths and vows of faithfulness will be tested and they are subjected to a real stress test, if you will. Nevertheless, as we have witnessed in each stanza, his confession remains consistent. He finds the covenant revelation of the Lord to be sufficient each verse, beginning with the Hebrew letter Nun in this section, the 14th stanza, proclaims as much. And in summary, the, the, or the, in summary, the theme could well be, in, in this stanza 14, the Word of God is sufficient for the trial of mortal affliction. Or, the Word of God is sufficient for the trial of testing even unto death. So with that introduction, I'd like to organize this message around three primary words, three main points. Those words are light, life, and joy. The psalmist proclaims in the nun stanza, the word of God is the wellspring of light. It is a sufficient source of wisdom and knowledge. Verses 105 through 106. Secondly, he goes on, the word of God is the wellspring of life. The word of the Lord is a sufficient source of salvation, even unto resurrection from the dead. And thirdly, the Word of God is a wellspring of joy. It is a sufficient source of fulfillment and satisfaction, encouragement for the soul. Verses 111 through 112. 
So let us consider then our text in more detail today, beginning with our first point, the Word of God is the wellspring of light, a sufficient source of wisdom and knowledge. Reading again 105 and 106, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So I grew up, thankfully, with the legacy of Christianity proclaimed to me through multiple means in a Christian home. My Christian parents are with me today. I'm sure thankful for them. As well as my grandfather, who started a small Christian school when I was young and read the Proverbs to us, among other things, the proverb of the day over the years. And we used to stand, and we would pledge allegiance to the flag, but we would also, more importantly, pledge allegiance each school day to the Bible. I don't know if any of you know or are familiar with this pledge, but it went like this. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. So, of course, I can't, I'm not sure how many times we recited that pledge over the years when I was growing up, but I was reminded of it in our text today because one of the scriptural basis, bases for that oath is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that pledge is sort of fitting because in this section, there's also the context of oath in view. The very next verse, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it. I, to keep your righteous rules and setting that detail aside, let us first consider the testimony, the confession of the author, the word of God as light, the word of God as a lamp. Now, our kids, as part of their homeschool curriculum, study Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm convinced that John Bunyan drew great inspiration from Psalm 119 for his allegory because there's a journey motif, as we've remarked before, and there's many analogies in the psalm that relate to a path or travel. And so if you combine those two pictures, Pilgrim's Progress and this verse here, you can put it this way, that the light of Christian on his journey, in order to see the path that he must go, is given to him, is illuminated by the word of God. The Word of God, in this sense, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The revelation of the Lord is a prerequisite for wisdom and for knowledge. It is the primary and necessary condition for understanding, for truth, and if you will, for enlightenment. Now that phrase, enlightenment, is popular among false religions and spiritual notions of any day and age. From the beginning of the original sin and the fall in the garden, there's this lust for knowledge and the quest of enlightenment and understanding independent of the true lamp and light and ultimate and only source. But we must recognize any other manufactured, man-made, blasphemous or false religious light will not lead us in the path that we should go but will lead us, in the words of our psalmist, into a snare placed for us by the enemy. There's only one way to tell where to go. There's only one way to see this world. There's only one way to establish a correct worldview, and that is in the lamp and the light, according to the light from the lamp of the Word of God. The Christian Pledge of Allegiance is one, as I said before, that acknowledges that this is primary and fundamental. Implicitly, the author, you could say it this way if you're interested in some fancy philosophical language, he acknowledges in this analogy, in this picture, this illustration, the transcendental authority of divine revelation. 
Transcendental means over and above, primary and first principles. There is a transcendental authority of divine revelation. Said another way, the revelation of God is the precondition of intelligibility. Nothing can be known unless God first makes it known. I said another way still, there is in what's called presuppositional apologetics, this proof for God, it goes like this. The ultimate proof for the existence of God is the fact that without him, you can't prove anything at all. Without the light and the knowledge of our Lord, we wouldn't be functional human beings. Without the ability to reason and think clearly and in systematic categories granted to us by an orderly creator, we would not have the mental capacity, the ability, the cognitive faculties to process anything. It is only the rebel that presupposes, oh, I don't think God exists. It's an unreasonable assumption. Given what? Your scientific understanding, your ability to reason, you're betting that the future will be like the past, that laws of logic will hold up over time. Don't you realize, fool, that all of these depend on an orderly universe, on systematic categories, on the durability of reason, and on logic that is immaterial and ultimate realities that cannot be challenged, changed, or shaken? Don't you realize, fool, the Bible says that none of these can exist independent of a sovereign Savior, Lord, and one who has ordered all things according to His nature and character, which is absolute, unchanging, and enduring? C.S. Lewis said this, I love this quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because it, I see everything else. Again, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Different ways of confessing the implications of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I'm dependent on the Lord and His Word for revelation, for knowledge, for wisdom, for direction. Only in Him do I have the proper perspective. Only in Him can I navigate the difficulties, the apparent contradictions, the, uh, all, of the, all of the challenges of life. And as I submit them to the Word of God, I find their order, their relationship, and understanding. I have categories in which to place them. And I have a clear view of the world that he has made, myself and where I stand before him, and how I can advance unto, uh, uh, unto the image of Jesus Christ through the gospel and his work all along, along the way in my life. There is no substitute for this. The pagans, no pseudoscientific um, alternative, no mystical quest for knowledge, no lust for enlightenment could ever yield to us true perception. No, the only sufficient source of wisdom and knowledge is the Word of God. Psalm 36, 9 says it this way. I have to uh, turn there quickly just because it's such a powerful reinforcing concept from within the Scriptures as well. I love this term, wellspring. It speaks of a source, uh, and that's the, picture we, or that's the imagery we're using in our heading today. Similar imagery is used in Psalm 36, 8. It says, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. God is the ultimate wellspring or source of all things, including the light to see in the first place. As acknowledged poetically as a fountain of life or a river of his delights. Verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. The psalmist says, this is David in Psalm 36, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 
So C.S. Lewis was echoing, was he not? I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see by it, I see everything else. And thus the psalmist begins in Psalm 119 and Psalm 36, acknowledging the source of understanding in the first place is the immutable, authoritative word of God. In our highlighter challenge, if you're taking it with me, we're highlighting synonyms for God's covenant revelation. And in this section, they are word and rules, and then again, word and rules, and then law, precepts, testimonies, and statutes. These are the things that provide the perspective and the light by which to understand, discern, and hold up everything else, to measure them, as we said last week, against the testimony and Jude of the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of Jesus Christ revealed in his word. Where do these philosophies, ideas, understandings, and claims to knowledge stand in light of the word of God? That is the question that we are to keep in the back of our mind as we negotiate a world full of rebels and fallenness and seek to keep our spiritual wits about us. And as we do so, we'll find a sufficient source of light and understanding and wisdom and knowledge in God's word, rightly divided, correctly understood, with the help of the Holy Spirit, growing our understanding of the same. Now this revelation, as the Spirit uses it to awaken our souls to understanding, will lead to a confession. What is a confession? It's a statement of fact and conviction on the hearts of those who have a firm understanding. Psalm 106, the psalmist says, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So I have confidently uh, drawn a line in the sand where I will stand and what I stand for. This is the heart of his oath and confession. The uh, reference that might be helpful to understand the context of a statement like this is found in the book of Nehemiah. I'll turn uh, you there quickly in chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. Context is the people of God returned from exile in Babylon to reestablish a reconstitution, if you will, of worship. And the temple is reconstructed. The worship service, the order of worship is reinstituted. The priests are gathered. The people are assembled. They bow before the authority of God's word. And then, having heard and acknowledged the authority, glory, majesty, dominion, and the, and the sovereignty of God's revealed truth, they make an oath and a vow and a commitment, a statement, a confession of their own conviction. In Nehemiah 10, 28, the rest of the people, notice these categories, it's the population, you know, the citizens, the commoners, if you will. The priests, those who serve as religious leaders. The Levites, those likewise serving ministers in the temple. The gatekeepers, important uh, figureheads in society. The singers, those ordained to worship. The temple servants. So here we have a comprehensive list. The rest of the people, go on, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. They go on to say by application, verse 30 and following, things like this. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. 
What they are acknowledging is the just chastening of the Lord for breaking his law in times past. And now they're making an oath and a commitment. They're stating their confession that the word of God is their standard by which they will live. And they recognize if they do not uphold this, that there are consequences to pay. Now the Spirit, when he reveals his truth to you, this is a pattern that is uh, echoed in the gospel as well. He begins proclaiming his truth by way of revelation, and that's followed by a confession, I believe. And that confession is followed by evidence, conviction. I now walk in light of this truth. In Romans 10.10, with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. With the heart, man believes, or or roughly speaking, we find this progress in the awakening of a soul. The truth of the gospel is proclaimed, and then the confession that one commits himself or confesses or proclaims that it is true for them. They place their faith and trust in Christ as their salvation. And then even in baptism, this commitment to, uh, that you are his now and you'll walk in his ways then begins to play out in the life of conviction. And this is what was acknowledged in Nehemiah 10, 28 through 29 in this oath and this swearing and this confirmation of that oath. What was an oath and what was a confirmation of an oath in the Old Testament scriptures? Well, it was an indicating by formal acknowledgement of intentions via ceremony. Indicating by formal acknowledgement of intentions or indicating of, uh, indicating formal acknowledgement of intentions, the oath would do via ceremony, affirming the binding nature and submitting to the authority of the covenant, often by self-curse oath. Again, It was a commitment via ceremony of their intentions of the people to follow and to obey the Lord and acknowledging the binding nature of the covenant authority over them. And often it was attended by a self-maledictory or self-curse oath. as just proclaiming the truth that the Lord is sovereign. I must submit to him. And if I do not, there are consequences. So in this first section, under the, uh, under the word of God as a wellspring of light, we find not only that the word of God is sufficient for true and accurate understanding, but the word of God also demands a submission. For those who have heard the word of God, who have come into contact with the authority of Christ, even the culpability on a, of a single sermon correctly proclaimed places a weight of responsibility upon the hearer. You have heard now and have no excuse or even less excuse than before if it could be said that God is sovereign. Therefore, confess as much, place your faith in him and state your claim publicly with conviction that God is God and I deserve hell, but he has saved me by his grace. Therefore, I will live for him. This is the heart of the psalmist in acknowledging that the word of God is a wellspring of light, a sufficient source of wisdom and knowledge. It's a place where he starts. It's where the gospel starts in this section, and we should acknowledge it as well. Second major point. The nun stands and proclaims the word of God is the wellspring, not just of light, but also of life. In, in this, the psalmist proclaims the word of God is a sufficient source of salvation, even unto resurrection. This would be the theme of verses 107 through 110. Turning again to our primary text. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, 
and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. The word of God is a wellspring of life, is a sufficient source and assurance of salvation, even unto resurrection. First, we recognize in this passage that the psalmist, the test and trial that he faces is this, what he describes, severe affliction. And what we've summarized as a mortal affliction. The possibility of death itself. Verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. There's sort of echoes or foreshadowings in this presenting trial of the passion of Jesus himself. And Matthew 26, 39, that's that uh, records the moments of Jesus taking on the weight of the wrath of God to die in the place of sinners. And this weight is so heavy and the suffering of this and the intensity and the suffering of this call is so great, described as a cup, a cup of the wrath of God, if you will, that Jesus cries out to his father that if it be his will, could it please be removed from him? This is the ultimate of mortal affliction that Jesus Christ endured for us. No one will ever face affliction this severe. Though we do, uh, relatively speaking, on mere human, under mere human conditions, we face severe afflictions often in the course of our life. We have one who has gone before us victorious in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the fullness of revelation, the work of Jesus on the cross inspires the faith of the saints. Now the faith of our psalmist is evident in that Christ has not come yet, but nevertheless, he was assured of resurrection by the covenant promises of God. But we have the benefit of hindsight after the New Testament has been recorded that Jesus Christ indeed suffered an affliction so severe we could never approach it, yet was victorious. So if you are in him, if he is your savior, will you not be delivered from your severe affliction? Is the word of God, indeed Christ, the word made flesh, not a sufficient source of resurrection life? He certainly is. Hebrews 12, 2 through 5, attaches the victory of Christ, despite the affliction that he faced, to the faith and the encouragement of the saints. And as we pick up on these words of exhortation, consider verse 2 and following, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you not forgotten, and have you, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So packed in to the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 119 and the further exposition of the author of Hebrews is this reality that however heavy the affliction we face may be, Jesus, it will never approach the infinitely greater affliction that Jesus faced for us. How did he endure? The joy that was set before him. 
It was the victory that was assured when he conquered sin and death on Calvary that motivated our Savior to embrace the afflicting hand of God. And so our psalm here, this stanza, concludes with joy as well. And the attitude, the posture of faith is that God has prepared difficulties in our lives, so like Jesus, as we endure them, that he will be glorified and magnified in us and his work and his purpose through them will be evident along the way. And we also will be changed and it will be a great benefit as the scriptures go on to say in Romans 8, 28, that the Lord works all things together for good to those who uh, love him and are called according, are the called according to his purpose. So this is a great a theme that we need to remember and also the Author of Hebrews reminds us that one of the purposes in affliction is the discipline of the Lord that he uses to transform us into the image of Christ. So the word of God, by these reminders and the, and the uh, situations that he designs in our life, they are for a purpose. And as we go through those difficulties, we find the word of God is the wellspring of life in spite of mortal affliction. It is a sufficient source of salvation, even unto resurrection. The psalmist moves from this confession to deliberate praise. He says, verse 108, Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. And in the context of the weight of what he's facing, this offering of praise would be perhaps have a little more value, if you will, because of the conditions under which he is suffering. The Lord loves his saints, and the, suffering, and the sufferings of his saints is something that weighs heavy upon our Lord. When Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, though he had the power and exercise it to raise him from the dead, he was not immune to that a covenantal relationship, that connection, and that love that he shared with Lazarus. Thus, Jesus cried at the tomb, of, as we've mentioned, in recent weeks. And thus we see in this that the prayers of the saints and the cry of the saints in their time of need is a precious, sweet-smelling incense of worship to the Lord. An application of these verses may well be the most precious and powerful worship that you could ever offer to the Lord is in those times when you least feel like it. And worship is not a feeling. Don't get it twisted. Worship isn't the overflow of happiness that you feel and is only meaningful if you want to do it in your flesh. No, worship is the expression that God is sovereign through tears sometimes. Worship is the expression, the confession that Jesus is Lord and my ultimate hope is in resurrection even if there's barely enough breath in your lungs to form those words. Worship is an upward glance towards glory and the dying breath of someone on their mortal deathbed in a hospital trusting Jesus Christ. This is worship. And this worship is sweet to our Lord. And these offerings are all the sweeter under the conditions and the testimony under these conditions of mortal affliction. And the testimony of your faith is all the more bold and magnified when you trust the Lord in spite of the difficulties that you face. These are the, this is the quality, if you will, of the free will offerings that the psalmist had to offer to the Lord in praise. And he also asked the Lord that he would in turn teach him his rules. He recognizes in this deliberate oath 
and bow to praise the Lord and to offer to him the glory that he deserves in spite of the affliction that he was enduring, that the Lord would speak to him through this. He trusted the means of God's word to him. He trusted that as he offered his praise, the Lord would speak back to him. He would teach him according to his rules. It oftentimes troubles my soul where there, I know that there are those who need to be in the assembly of the saints. They need to be in worship with God's people. And they feel like they're not presentable or they feel they don't, don't, they don't want to come because of maybe certain afflictions in soul or body that they're experiencing. It, that they're experiencing. This is a real tragedy and it's a snare of the enemy. Because as we offer to the Lord our worship, even during times when it's difficult, I mean, providential hardships notwithstanding, it's not always possible, but to the degree that it is, and certainly let our heart be there, when we offer to the Lord that worship, even in those painful moments of our lives, the Lord will use that step of faith to actually speak encouragement to our souls and to lift us up and to remind us of His power to resurrect and to save. And this is an incredible testimony and it is a resource for us in our times of need. This is the essence, by the way, of a properly ordered worship service. That when the word of God is proclaimed from the pulpit, we are hearing the encouraging voice of the Spirit of God. Insofar as the word is accurately proclaimed and rightly divided, we are being encouraged, we are listening to our Savior. We offer to him in our worship, our free will offerings, and then as we submit ourselves to his word in times of family worship and in times of the assembly of the saints, listening to the proclamation of truth, we recognize that he is teaching us his rules. He's reminding us that he is our light. He's reminding us that he is our life. He's reminding us that he is our only wellspring of joy. But we must count the cost. Verse 109, the psalmist says, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. This idiom, this figure of speech, I hold my life in my hand continually, it, it uh, conveys this sense of risking one's life. He's acknowledging what Joseph experienced, I suggest, in the case of the temptation of Potiphar's wife. If Joseph remained faithful to the law of God, he would risk his life. Because risking the anger of this mistress, this lady, his, uh, his master's wife, would get him framed for prison or worse. Nevertheless, he counts the cost and obeys God's law in spite of the trial. He's holding his life in his hand. He's risking his life for righteousness' sake. Was it worth it? Well, it would take faith to answer yes, if you were Joseph. And we've mentioned this in our study. But in the end... The Lord is glorified and Joseph is lifted up. And we find that, yes, this perspective of righteousness being worth the cost of one's own life provided a testimony through him that saved the covenant people and encourages you and I, the saints, even today. A similar story, of course, in the case of Daniel and his three friends. We've mentioned this as well. In the case of Daniel in the lion's den or his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, there again, at the cost of their own lives, they obeyed God's word. And there are times in the course of our trials where it would seem that the cost of obedience might even be mortal affliction or our own life. Nevertheless, we look to the scriptures and find that the righteousness of God is worth it. 
And what gives us this reassurance? The word of God is a sufficient wellspring of life. We can face death if we truly believe in resurrection. What gave Abraham the faith to head up the hill Moriah with his only son in tow, the only possible answer to the covenant promise, his only son in his old age, to offer him as a sacrifice on the altar of obedience? What gave him the faith to do that? Hebrews 11 tells us he believed in the resurrecting power of his Lord. Abraham had experienced a resurrection in the womb of his own wife, a womb dead to rights. There's no way life could spring from that womb. Oh, yes, there is. Because the word of God can speak and create this world in the first place. And out of nothing, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so, out of a womb dead and barren, a hundred years old almost, let there be a child. And there was a child. And thus the word of God given to Abraham increased his faith and proclaimed to him that God has the power over life and death. And if God commanded him to sacrifice his own son, he knew that God could raise him from the dead. And that because he had sworn by himself that his promises would come to pass, that if that were the case, God would do so. And of course, God spares Isaac's life. Nevertheless, the faith of Abraham is a lesson for us and it proclaims to us that counting the cost, though it may be, seem very expensive in the short term, we can do so when we recognize and truly believe in resurrection. Sufficient source of resurrection, the word of God is our life, enemies notwithstanding. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. The word of God is a sufficient source of life, enemies notwithstanding. There are two senses perhaps that we could identify enemies and this picture of snare or a trap laid for us. The first is a snare triggered by obedience to God. And then in the case of Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace, this is a good example. Do you remember the uh, schemers in Daniel's day said, you're not going to find any fault in this man unless it's with respect to the law of his God. So they passed an arbitrary law, an unrighteous edict that no one should pray except to the king for a period of time. And they went to spy on David and, or Daniel. Sure enough, they found him praying to the one true God. And thus a snare was laid. Yet David, Daniel, excuse me, in faithfulness to the law of his God, uh, in, 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 nevertheless caught in this snare, yet what does the Lord do? Daniel has faith that God could shut the lion's mouths, but even if the lions killed him, he served a God that raises the dead. And Daniel knew his scriptures. He knew that God had raised the dead womb, if you will, as we have spoken, of Sarah to give her a child, so God will raise him. He also knew that God had the power to shut the lion's mouths. And this was the means of salvation that God prepared in that moment. So in spite of this snare that the enemy placed, triggered by obedience to God's word, nevertheless, the Lord in his sovereignty had the last laugh and Daniel was delivered. Of course, there's a second kind of snare. And this would be a temptation snare triggered by breaking God's law. And in this case, the scripture applies here as well. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. So if we follow the word of God, his law, his precepts, his statutes, with the lamp to our feet and the light to our path that is his holy scriptures, we are on a straight and narrow path that leads to life. As Jesus himself said, but wide and easy is the way that leads to destruction. You can imagine that straight and narrow path 
as having snares all along either side of the road. And these snares are triggered by disobedience to God's law. If Joseph, for instance, in preservation of his own life, had broken God's law, he would have been ensnared, for instance. Or you think of Balaam and the counsel that he gave to the Midianites. He could not proclaim a curse against these people, but he ends up in Numbers 31, 16, counseling the ungodly king, hey, go deceive them and go persuade them to break covenant with the Lord. Go tempt them with your women and go seduce them to commit sin and immorality and adultery amongst your people. If you do that, then you will find an inroad. And thus the Trojan horse of the people's own sin pulled the Midianite values into the gates of their society, corrupted them, and a plague broke out. Why? Because they fell into the temptation snare and did not, according to the word of God, as a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path, maintain that road, that clear way. Instead, they strayed from the precepts of the Lord and fell into the snare of the wicked. Remember, in either case, that the word of God is a sufficient wellspring of life. It is the way of life. And in the case of a high cost for our faith, it is resurrection life. And thus, in both senses, we find a sufficient source of salvation in the Word of God, revealed in the Scriptures, and the Word made flesh in Christ, a sufficient source of salvation, even unto resurrection life. In light of these truths, is it easier to understand that no weapon formed against us will prosper? If death can't kill us, then what, uh, what instrument does the enemy have? What weapon is still at his disposal? If Jesus Christ has defeated death, that truly is the last enemy. And we are victorious indeed. Requires faith this side of the veil of tears. But remember, on the other side of that veil, all tears are washed away. And there's nothing but the unmitigated, unveiled glory, majesty, fully consummate dominion and authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we live in light of these truths, we will have faith to face afflictions, even mortal afflictions, trials unto death. Finally this morning, joy. Light, life, and joy. The Word of God is a wellspring of light. It's a wellspring of life, a wellspring of joy. That is, it is a sufficient source of fulfillment and satisfaction. Verses 111 and 112. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Having waded through the difficulty of his trial, even in these short eight verses, it's awesome to see this note, this crescendo towards the end, where the psalmist acknowledges that the testimonies of the Lord are sufficient to give him joy, fulfillment and satisfaction, encouragement and happiness in the hour of his despair. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. As I contemplated that word heritage, this week it occurred to me that this applies for the young and applies to the old. If you look even in the social, cultural, political situation we just lived through, one of those midterm election, you know, highly charged emotional sequences and the choosing of leadership over us that reveals in many cases the decrepit state of spiritual health in our society. And there are two things among others that really compel or shape the political landscape of our day. For the young, it's an identity quest. And for the old, it's legacy. You know, but the psalmist 
in opposition to any substitute on these, identity and legacy, proclaims that God in his word alone is the true source, sufficient source of heritage. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. What a great prayer for our nation. What a great prayer for our leaders. You know, we see this white-knuckled, you know, dementia notwithstanding quest to cling to power until the bitter end by our president and others today. There's this hope against hope that in their position of political power and leverage, they might secure for themselves some legacy in their old age. This is nothing but idolatry. And whether you're a pauper on the street paying your overburdened tax bill, you know, each April 15th, or whether you're a person making the very policies that redistribute the wealth under the current conditions in which we live, the answer to both, uh, to, to, uh, in either case, is that the testimonies of the Lord ought to be our heritage forever. Let us not trust in the schemes of man. Let us not trust in these false idols or these ways and means that secure for us the false promise of hope or salvation or meaning or fulfillment or joy. Let the testimonies of the Lord be our heritage forever. And this will allow us to weather these storms in a much greater degree. Identity politics and identity crises have absolutely upended our culture of late. People are rebelling against the created order that God has established. They want something else. They are unfulfilled. And in their sin, they seek for salvation and medical and sociological manipulation, demanding the world conform to their arbitrary search for fulfillment and meaning. And why are we in this cesspool of rebellion and dysfunction in our society today, it's because the testimonies of the Lord are not our heritage, generally speaking, as a people. And let us pray that they would be our heritage again. And let us model for the unbeliever that whether this situation or whether the identity, it's an identity issue for the young or a legacy question for the old, that the testimonies of the Lord, the word of God, is sufficient source of joy, fulfillment, satisfaction and meaning. The psalmist holds his affections accountable to these things. We see this when he says in verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Affections, the deepest desires, the motivations, the motive force that drives one's soul, really the inspiration behind one's pursuits, and the direction of their life, their goals and things that they pursue towards the future hope and joy. The inclinations of the heart, where do we find joy? What is the rewarding satisfaction that we are pursuing? Do we find these things in the testimonies of the Lord? Do we find our heart inclined towards the joys and the rewards and the satisfaction and the fulfillment of performing the Lord's statutes? Do we find ourselves satisfied and encouraged by our obedience to his word? If we do not, let us pray that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would change our lives, conform us, so that our deep desires and our motives and our loves and the things that we pursue would be in line with the things that are truly holy, holy, trustworthy, true, of good report, praiseworthy, and so forth. I incline my heart to perform your statutes, the psalmist says. And now what's a practical way to apply this? Let me just give you one example. Um, as, you, as we approach Sunday worship in our homes, it's a great idea to encourage our children, parents, are you looking forward to meeting with God's people tomorrow? 
or prayer before meals. We try to do this on Friday and Saturday night. Lord, prepare our hearts to worship you. What are we doing? We're building a sense of, in, of anticipation. We're building a, a sense of, in, of joy on what the blessings that behold us when we go to the house of the Lord. The songs of ascent were meant to train the affections of the young and the old alike as they approached the hill of God's communion with man. And this was, of course, a geographic picture that is fulfilled in Christ today. We no longer worship at a hill, but Jesus is our connection between God and man. But there was this time in ancient Israel where on the journey to the temple, where the sacrifices, the animals would be sacrificed as a symbolic atonement. And as they would approach that place of meeting with God and the promise of reconciliation, that a substitute would cover them so they, they would be right standing with the Lord. They would sing songs of anticipation, celebrating that. You know, the season coming up, there might be some controversy about this, but I don't mind saying it. I think the incarnation of Jesus Christ is worthy cause for celebration. So that's a way to redeem this holiday season that's approaching us. You know, in this time where we set aside a moment in our culture to acknowledge, if you really understand the meaning, the significance of it, the fact that God became a man and dwelt with us, Emmanuel in the flesh, was born of a woman by a miraculous, perhaps the, most, the greatest miracle in all of history, that God became man to take on the burden of our salvation. What an incredible opportunity to attach our affections and our awe and our amazement, our celebrations, our feasting, our anticipation and, and the glory uh, and even the order of our home and the things that we celebrate and promote to the work and the worth of Jesus Christ. His glory, His majesty, His dominion and His authority, even evident in the incarnation. Finally, there is an implicit call for endurance through the testimony of the author in verse 112, he concludes this stanza by saying, by singing, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. In closing, turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. The shape of this uh, stanza, however short, acknowledges, begins with the revelation of the Lord, continues with the conviction and an oath, the commitment to follow, and closes with the call to enduring joy. In that brief arc, it really is the shape of the believer's entire life. The Lord calls us out of sin and death by the proclamation of the gospel. And then through sanctification, he gives us the privilege of announcing his truth and walking in his ways. And then he rescues us through death, unto glory in the second resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And so this call to endurance in the meantime is our primary task right now. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, um, we find this, I'll turn to 2 Timothy in a moment. Verse 35, we, re we read this. I can find it under my sticker here. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, persevere, and, persevere, and preserve excuse me, their souls. In 2 Timothy, Paul, as an example of this calling applied, proclaims this. This is his end of life, close of ministry, confession, if you will. Verses 6 through 8, 2 Timothy 4. 
for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. For I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love the appearing of Jesus Christ? And what does this mean? Well, in the meantime, the Lord has appeared to you in his word. Do you love his word? The Lord has appeared to you in these means of grace. The prayers, the gathering of the saints, the worship, his word, and all of these things that God uses to encourage our souls. He appears to us, in a sense, through these. Do you love his appearing? And is your joy encouraged and built up by, as a result of these things that he has supplied? And furthermore, do you love his appearing at the end of your life when he ransoms you from this mortal coil and through your own death proves the power of his resurrection as you look forward to your heavenly body one day, having put aside this tent that is going, growing threadbare, as Paul describes it, and, and re receiving that glorified body in the next life? And furthermore, do you love the appearing of the Lord as the sovereign over history when Jesus Christ will return and his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority unmistakable as our sovereign Lord with a rod of iron destroys as clay pottery all his enemies. Yet behind him is a triumphant parade of those clothed in the right, white robes of his own righteousness singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Do we love the appearing of the Lord? when he once and for all at his great throne judgment uh, balances all of the injustices and declares guilty, depart from me, I never knew you, or justified by the blood I shed on Calvary. And if you love the appearing of the Lord, then you will have the confidence of a Paul, despite the mortal affliction that he often faced to celebrate the day of Christ's appearing, and the great privilege of suffering for his namesake in the meantime, and you will live, as Calvin said, with one foot slightly lifted, ready to step into glory. What a great picture of hope, despite the difficulties we face between now and then. And the scriptures remind us of this in so many ways, and I pray that they will be etched deeper on your souls as a result of encountering them in Psalm 119 this morning. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the encouragement that's available to us in the word of Jesus Christ, proclaimed in your scriptures and revealed in the flesh, in the incarnation and his work on Calvary. I pray for those who are experiencing afflictions, even right now in our church, Lord, that you would remind them that your word is a sufficient source of light and life and joy. And Lord, as they cling to you, I pray that you would just magnify by your Spirit's power and through these means, their encouragement so that they would be lifted above whatever despair and discouragement and hardship and depression the enemy might want to entrap them and ensnare them with. I pray, Lord, as they turn to your word that they would find there the armaments of their soul to fight the good fight and to stand in the day of adversity. Lord, for the unbeliever in the hearing of this message, I pray that it would move them to fear the Lord Almighty. They would recognize that they, like all men, will one day stand before your glory, majesty, dominion, and authority and give account for their lives. There's no justification apart from the blood of Christ. 
welcomed and accepted by every true believer as a payment for their sins. Lord, I pray that you would move the unbeliever to turn from their rebellion and to trust Jesus Christ alone and in your light that they might find life and joy as well. And all of this, may your kingdom advance, may your church grow, may our confidence be built, and may our witness be magnified to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.